looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we're going to talk about commercial real estate and what's going on with the markets with Dante Belmonte. He is a managing partner of Victory Capital Group. He's also a real estate agent. He's a podcaster, and he is the person behind the brand of Multifamily Madness, this really cool Twitter handle. So how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm super excited. I'm very excited as well to talk about commercial real estate and love all your valuable insights that you provide via your Twitter tweets, our X, whatever it's called nowadays. (laughs) So are you in New York or in North Carolina? Yeah, so I'm located in upstate New York, so Syracuse, New York. Uh, That's where my wife and my daughter and I reside. Um, I broker property up here, mostly investment property, and then I buy 90% of my assets down in North Carolina. Very smart. Uh, I also live in New York and I prefer to invest in real estate outside of the state and other developing areas and growing areas. So we'll definitely be talking about that as well. So I want to know about your focus in commercial real estate or in real estate overall. I know you also do some residential. Um, Doesn't hurt. Can't turn away clients. So tell us um, what your focus and what you're doing right now in these times. Yeah, so this is a very interesting time with what interest rates have done and how the market has cooled down significantly. You know, multifamily volume is down, transaction volume is down 80% year over year right now. Um, if you're buying multifamily, you know you're not looking at nearly as many deals. The The larger deals are the ones that are really have been affected. Um, we'll call it 10, 20 plus units, definitely 100 plus units that are really down. So what I focus on brokering is some residential but two to 20 unit deals down in or up in Syracuse, New York. And those smaller deals aren't really, haven't really been affected by interest rates at this time. To to put it into perspective, in 2022, for the whole year, I did 80 transactions. I closed 80 transactions. This, we're in basically the end of July, year to date, between what I've closed and what I have under contract is 94 transactions. So transaction volume on the smaller side of things is up significantly. But that's also because if you talk to other brokers or agents, they'll tell you that their business is down significantly for the year. They've pulled back. They've pulled back marketing dollars because they're not making as much. Where I reinvested, I doubled down, and I went in even harder, and it's showing right now. The amount of transactions, the amount of leads, the amount of production I'm doing right now um, tops anyone in my market. But that's because, again, when people are pulling back, which a lot of people are, I'm doubling down. So I'm pulling on the market share that they gave away, essentially, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I I believe that during the difficult times is when we build. And, you know, I could go through many years of this, but in 2007, eight, nine is when one of our business, actually a few of our businesses grew significantly while others were unfortunately, you know, folding or pulling back as a time to take calculated risks and expand and grow because there are a lot of 
holes left in the market by other people leaving their places. So now you can take advantage and move forward either vertically or horizontally in your case, integrating. And uh, this is exciting. So, okay. So now you're more focused on the two to 20 units. When you say yep, the small. larger deals, really there aren't as many, what's going on over there and what are you seeing? Why are the reasons why they aren't going on as much? Yeah. So larger deals are one, the, the debt's a little different. So on like a two unit, a four unit, something like that, I can get a, you know, a nice 30 year fix, very easy mm -hmm, loan, exactly. loan types, very easy. Uh, it's typically gonna be a, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a typical lower interest rate, but also on these larger deals, the, the larger deals take on lots of expenses. Mm -hmm. So with a smaller deal, trash is included with the taxes, landscaping, snow removal, you might have a tenant due. You don't have contracted services and pest control come in. On these larger deals, there's a laundry list of operating expenses. And those operating expenses are getting hit by inflation as well. So where rents aren't growing at 10, 12, 15% annual rent growth right now, and the uh, expenses have, have increased because of inflation, that NOI number is shrinking. Because that NOI number is shrinking as well as interest rates coming up, so the borrowing power is not as significant. You're paying more for dollars borrowed. Therefore, the price has to be less. So all these things are making pricing uh, pullbacks. And we've seen it. You talk to any brokers, you talk to any multifamily investors. You know, we haven't bought a large multifamily deal since July 6th of 2022. So almost exactly a year from now is when we lost bought our last deal. I'm personally under contract on my own transaction right now, um, a medium-sized apartment complex that I'm buying, you know, personally for tax purposes, but the larger ones, and that's upstate New York, but the larger ones in North Carolina, just there's not a lot of transaction volume going on. You know, trans, uh, values are down 10, 15, 20%. And a lot of times the property isn't even worth the debt. So if someone bought a property for $10 million and they put $88 million worth of debt on it, sometimes the property is only worth $7.5 million right now. So therefore they're upside down. The, the debt is not even worth what the property is. Mm, makes sense. You know, I always like to say investment properties or cash flow properties, commercial properties are like businesses. When we have yep. margins are compressed, we have higher cost of goods in services. It's, it's hitting everyone across the board. You know, we still have higher prices. Inflation is cumulative and we also are getting demand coming down. So it's a very tight phenomenon going forward. And, you know, we may have a recession next year, who knows? Um, but I think this will take some time. So it makes sense on that. Now, and, and a few things I want to add to yes, that real quick. Please. I apologize for interrupting you, but, but you know, you, you look at the, the cap rate is the, your, your return on investment. Mm -hmm. If you bought it cash, so to speak, it's how some people describe it as it's mm -hmm. more of a, a, a formula to calculate risk and, you know, desirability of an asset. But historically we've seen interest rates as low or uh, cap rates as low as 3%, maybe getting up to 6% in the Southeast or the Sun Belt. Well, the problem is, is you can't buy at a five cap or a four cap and yeah. then borrow at a six or seven cap. You're negative leverage day one, unless you can guarantee turn that apartment complex around in two to three months, which you, you can't do and get the upside and get it into a positive equity position. You can, the, the flip side of that is why would I go buy a five and a half or 6% cap rate deal when I can just go dump a bunch of money into uh, treasury bills right now that are yielding five and a half percent with some tax benefits. I believe it's uh, federal and uh, federal tax break, but I think there's still income tax on it. But regardless, 
why not just go yield five and a half percent right now instead of taking a risk to buy some risky real estate at you know a five cap or a four cap? Yes, there's different tax benefits to real estate, and you don't get to experience the upside if you're in bills, but it's just kind of hard to buy a deal at such a such a low base or such a high basis. Absolutely. I guess we'll go right into cap rates. You know, it's always about the risk adjusted returns. And if you can get five and a half percent on T bills, you know, the three months or even the four weeks or over five, you know, yep. if you can get that, why put your money in riskier assets, which are equities as well as real estate? And with real estate, you you do need to have, I always look for cap rates that are much higher than the interest rate. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Then you're relying yep. on the equity growth. And you know we're not really certain if there's going to be a substantial growth in equity anytime soon with all these other issues that are going on with the markets. So, And I also look at cash on cash return, which is key. And it's the return on your cash. So excellent points there. Dante, absolutely. You know, and there's so many different factors. We were about 525 right now, basis points. We've gone up, you know, 500 basis points in like a little over and a And while year. we've been sitting here, the Fed just rose the rate, uh, 25 basis points, I believe. Okay, so 525 to 550. That's where we're at right now, 525 to 550. And so we're probably looking about 5.33%, something like that. Um, yep. So there you go. And I know commercial rates right now are, you know, if, if you go with, you know, they're shorter term loans as well. And like you said, if you go residential under five units, you can go with the longer term 30 year residential loans. When you go commercial, they're shorter term and they're higher rates. So right yep. now I was pulling up rates today and you correct me if I'm wrong. I'm seeing some places, you know, high fives, but you're seeing in the sixes and some yep. even as high in the low sevens. Oh, so yeah. that's significant. So when you get the cap rates are four and five, that's just not cutting it, in my opinion. So Correct. you're going to have to have values come down because the formula is and, you know, the net operating income divided by the price. So prices need to come down. Doesn't seem like the net operating income is going up anytime soon. And we have a lot of issues in office and, you know, retail as well. And I want to get into the different uses. Your focus yep. is multifamily. Do you also invest in mixed use? I love mixed use. I'm a mixed use kind of person. Do you look at um, industrial? Do you focus in retail, office, or any of the other uses? So primarily multifamily, what I broker and what I buy, um, we've looked at some self-storage. We've looked at some retail, some you know mixed use. Uh, personally, I would love to diversify my portfolio with mixed use or some retail, small, you know, regional or strip mall centers. I would mm -hmm. love to get into, but it's it's very difficult right now. Um, industrial, I just feel like industrial is a beast that I don't quite understand just yet. So I want to get really good at what I'm doing now before I dive into another uh, difficult asset class, in my opinion. And then office, I, I don't do, I don't touch, I don't know. Um, it's just something that, you know, everyone hears about office just getting slaughtered right now. And the amount of vacant uh, office square footage is off the charts. And so it's just something I won't even entertain and probably won't for the next few years. Makes sense. Always invest with what you know, and then study yep. and learn and then go for it. Um, I and multifamily is so forgiving. It's short-term oh, leases. Yeah. Everyone needs a place to live. I mean, Everyone needs a place I'm not going to gonna say, you know, a monkey can operate multifamily to some degree. Everyone can, um, but it's much more forgiving versus retail or, you know, uh, we'll, we'll just use retail as an example. Those are five-year, 10-year leases. They're much less forgiving. And if you don't have the capital and you have a vacant space for two, three years, that could bankrupt you. 
Absolutely, especially with the challenges we have going on with the economy. And we know office spaces are most likely going to be repurposed because the vacancies are increasing. You know, COVID changed the way we do business. So there are many are returning to offices. So there are vacancies. And, you know, another concern I just want to throw in there is that a lot of commercial real estate is held in pension funds. So that could be affecting you know, the funds as well. So there are a lot of issues, a lot of headwinds um, with commercial real estate, but absolutely multifamilies, everyone needs a place to live. And, yep. you know, and that, that, that's a very key, important point there and diversification. I love that you said that word. Uh, that's why I like multi multi-use is um, mixed use properties is that you have like a mix of maybe retail. And there's a lot of that here in New York, I'm in downstate. So you have like multifamily up top and then you have retail yep. downstairs Down below. so yeah. yeah exactly and a lot of people live upstairs they own the whole you know the whole building and then they have their retail space down there and then they sometimes they have office for themselves as well so very interesting um opportunities there so what are your type top criteria when you look to invest are you looking yeah for great, great upside, question upside potential under rented you know, deferred maintenance, um, numbers, what do you look at? Yeah. So great question. I get this question a lot. So really the first one is vintage. So it has to be 1980s or newer, um, because of construction. So anything below 1980s, 70s, 60s, and, and, uh, older, you have lead paint, asbestos, galvanized plumbing, uh, laugh and plaster. You just, you have boilers, you have very old dated and expensive to maintain, uh, systems, building, material, everything. So 1980s and newer. Also with 1980s and newer, it's typically going to be in a slightly better location. A lot of the older stuff is going to have not as great tenants or maybe it's subsidized to a degree. Um, but it, as you start to get to newer newer product, it's located next to other newer product, newer retail, newer shopping centers um, and whatnot that's attracting great tenants. So vintage is a big one. Um, it has to be in a growth area, growth market, good school district. Um, we're not buying opportunistic, heavy, heavy, heavy value ads. We're buying properties in great locations. Like one that you may have seen me put on Twitter that I always say, and people laugh at, as I say, the Chick-fil-A method. Um, we want to buy a property that's within a mile or so of Chick-fil-A because Chick-fil-A, and you can use this with Starbucks, Chipotle, you know, Lowe's, wherever. These companies have massive marketing departments that do a massive amount of research um, and you know feasibility reports and everything to figure out where they want their locations to be to perform the best that has high traffic, good income, um, all the fundamentals that will help their business thrive and run. So why not just follow the path of those great companies that are doing it already? And uh, second, those companies are going to employ our tenants. If we're looking at blue collar working class, we want to be around their jobs where they're going to spend money, where they're going to spend time, where their friends are going to spend money, time, and also work. And then third, when I check my properties, I like to go get some chicken. It's a great spot to do it. So I like being close to those Chick-fil-A's. All of our properties are, are within a mile or two of uh, a Chick-fil-A. And I, I think that makes a big difference. So vintage location has to be in a growth area. Um, and then unit count. So typically we want to see over 20 units, especially if we're syndicating to take on the costs of all the legal costs to run the syndication the accounting, all the documentation, the returns, it's much harder to do it on a smaller unit count. It's much more expensive than it is a larger unit count where you're getting more income in for the property. Um, but, it, you know, value add has to have some upside potential. It can't have the rents all the way up here. Um, and it's got a cash flow day one. We're not going to buy something that negatively cash flows day one. 
um, because we're losing money day one and there's just too much risk. We want to be able to come into a property and say, hey, if we did nothing today, we can still pay all of our expenses and put some money in the bank. That's what we want to do. But we also want to say, hey, if we do nothing, pay all the expenses, put money in the bank and improve, we'll make an even greater return on our investment. So you can call it that value add, so to speak, but we're really looking at you know C plus to B plus deals. We're not looking at any high-end luxury uh, core, core plus assets, but we're not also looking in, in, in really crappier D-class areas, subsidized housing, um, things of that nature. So we're in that you know C to B plus arena. Very nice. Location, location, location. Always very important, says a lot. And using big companies' demographic analysis and their marketing analysis is key. For us, we would use Whole Foods. And so that's the type yep. of person who shops at those type of stores. And um, exactly. so, yeah, exactly. I like that Chick-fil-A. I'll think of you as Chick-fil-A, um, but very <laughs> important location is, is key. And, you know, I sometimes I look at deferred maintenance, depends on the type. You know, if you could put a little capital expenditures into a property and you can, you know, renovate, update it. It's the same thing as flipping homes in residential. Um, you could do that as well. But I like that, yeah. that it has to cash flow from day one. It's an investment. It's like a business. It has to cash flow. If it doesn't cash yep. flow, and that's a very big concern. So excellent points there. Cap rates. Let's talk about cap rates. We touched upon it before. What type of cap rates are you finding in the areas you're investing in? It seems like you do a little investing in New York, but mostly the larger projects in North Carolina. So what are the going cap rates right now that you're seeing in these multifamily buildings? Yeah. So, you know, I always, I, I'm big on data. I'm big on numbers. So what I'll do is I'll keep a running list of every property we look at, where it's located, what the pricing guidance is per door, what the NOI is, what cap rate that is, who brought me the deal, what it actually ended up trading at, and what was that cap rate. It's all about data. So if I pulled up all my data from, you know, 2020 into 2022, early 2022, you would see all the deals anywhere between a three to like a five cap. And that's really where the North Carolina market was for the most part. And those more busy metros, Raleigh, Durham, the triad, Charlotte, um, and whatnot. And uh, we, we're looking at three and five caps, three to five caps is what we're looking at. Unfortunately, a lot of those deals were sold on pro forma, which I'm sure those guys are kicking themselves in the tail for buying on pro forma. Mm -hmm. um, but we weren't buying on pro forma. We were buying on actuals mm -hmm. and, you know, we would look at 100, 200 deals and do one deal, which is fine. It's a numbers game. But today we're starting to see you had this big buyer and seller spread, bid-ask spread is what they call it. What the seller wants versus what the buyer is willing to pay. Right now, or I guess the last eight months, the seller wants to pay or wants way up here. The buyer wants way down here. They just can't meet at the middle. That spread is too big. We're starting to see that gap narrow more and more. And so therefore that as prices come down, that's going to help with cap rates. So that cap rate's going to expand a little bit. So we're starting to see deals trade around like five and a half, five and a half, six and a half cap. So it's going in the right direction. It's just going to take some time to get there. So that's North Carolina. In upstate New York, the deals I'm brokering are anywhere between an eight to a 12% cap rate. Now, those are super high cap rates. These are also older properties. And some of them may not be in super desirable locations. I don't sell a lot of the 11, 12% cap rate deals. It's more of like nine cap is what we see here, but also, you know, the taxes are higher. Um, so therefore the mm -hmm. property values are lower. So 
it, it you, you really just have to be involved in your markets and understand them. Those are two markets that I stick with because I know them very well. If someone mm-hmm. said, Hey, I've got a killer deal in Texas. I'm probably going to turn it down just because I know nothing about Texas. I got a killer deal in Georgia. I know nothing about Georgia, so I'm not going to chase after it. Um, but like the deal I'm buying right now in upstate New York, it's a 12 unit, um, 1986 vintage. And that property, I locked in my interest rate at 6.25%. And I'm buying the deal at an 8.6 cap rate. So right there, you've just about got a, uh, you have a 200 uh, basis point spread, which means I'm going to cash flow from day one, long-term owner, self-managed it, no leases, you know, one and two bedroom units renovated for six to $700 a month when those should be at, you know, a thousand, 1200 per month. So there's that meat on the bone. So, it, you know, the upstate New York market hasn't moved as much as some of these Southern tier markets, but that's also because there's billions upon billions of dollars flooding those markets that uh, naturally push prices up due to uh, competition. Um, but now we're starting to get in that realm of uh, realism on pricing and people are starting to realize uh, the actual pricing. So the long-winded answer to your question, we're starting to see cap rates come up about 100, 200 basis points on deals. Makes sense. They need to come up. You know, you said a great point. I always tell people it's not, you know, when you look at Zillow or you look at these property values, they exist they don't just exist in a bubble, you know, yep. in, in a vacuum. It's about where the buyers and sellers meet. And that's the actual price. So the sellers may want their high price. It doesn't mean that the buyer is willing to pay that price. So I exactly. think in time, yeah, the seller's prices are starting to come down, which will help push up those cap rates, which need to be higher when we see interest rates rising and going even higher to have that debt service, to meet that debt service, that cap rate needs to be higher. And also I want to ask, yeah, I want to ask you about management. How do you do the management of your properties? Do you have your own management company? Do you utilize the outsource management? Because there are certainly a lot of repairs necessary with multifamily properties. Mm -hmm. You know, somewhat the tenants have issues that go on. Do you have an on-site management person or repair person? Tell us how you do that. Yeah. So down in North Carolina, I get this question a lot. How do you manage your properties from, you know, eight states away? Well, we've got great property management. We got great boots on the ground. So in North Carolina, I've got one partner and he does all of our construction management. He travels around to each of our assets periodically, checks on contractors, cuts checks for work that's complete, does inspections. But we have we have prop, third party property management. We don't manage any of our own assets ourselves. Depending on the size of the asset, we do have some on-site maintenance guys. Uh, versus some of our smaller ones, we've just got maintenance guys on calls that will, once a work order comes in, they'll go in and actually work on that property. So everything we have is, is professional third-party property management. Okay, very nice. Um, reduce the headaches involved with having to manage it yourself. Because I know some people, when they first start out, they end up managing it themselves because they want to keep expenses down. But in yep. the long run, I think that negatively affects the ownership of these properties. So well, that's think- exactly it. And mm-hmm. one book I've got up here, Multifamily Millions by David Lindahl, I changed my perspective on real estate. When I first got into it, I was self-managing and I was getting landlord burnout real quick. Yeah. And he, you know, he says in his book, we're in the business to invest in real estate, not manage it. And he said how outsourcing management is so important. Absolutely. And the day I did that, it just changed my real estate investing trajectory. And it's, it's made it a much, much more uh, appealing journey. And I salute anyone that does property management because it's essentially adult babysitting. 
And it is one of the most difficult jobs, I think, that is underpaid. It's just, there's a lot to it. Absolutely. Uh, I agree. I don't like to do my own management. When we did our properties and we were, um, you know, I did not do management. That was definitely something I outsourced. And I included that in one of my expenses. That's part of the cash yep. flow analysis. That's a man, yep. having a third-party management company. Um, exactly. I want to ask you about lending. Lending is key. A lot of deals go south. And a lot of deals don't work out because of not inability to get financing. So what are you noticing with the commercial lending right now? Have they tightened their turn? I know their standard, the lending standards have tightened. How's the LTV looking on commercial properties and the debt coverage ratios? Um, how 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 is the lending nowadays? Yeah, so we, in our portfolio, we utilize agency financing, bridge debt, and credit union financing. Mm-hmm. Bridge debt is essentially dead right now. If you look at uh, the current SOFR rate, let me see if I can just get it pulled up. SOFR, current SOFR rate right now is about 5%. And depending on, yeah, we'll, we'll say 5% right now. Depending on your lender, there's going to be anywhere from a, a 5 to 8% spread on SOFR when you're lending, when you're uh, borrowing funds uh, on bridge. So that means right now, uh, bridge loan rates are anywhere from 10 to 13, 12, you know, 10 to 12%. That's a very high interest rate to borrow on a property. Mm-hmm. Bridge is dead right now. No one's really lending out in bridge. No one's borrowing with bridge. It's too risky. And everyone's seeing everyone that took on or inexperienced operators that took on bridge debt with the wrong terms is getting slaughtered right now. All the bridge we took on was fixed rate, had extensions built in, no prepays, and it wasn't like we had short one or year, two year terms. A lot of the guys that have one or two year bridge debt, um, they're they're being choked out. They're being forced to sell because they cannot refinance and they have to sell at a loss or um, their rate is resetting. Their rate cap is, is expiring and they have to bring mm-hmm. money to the table or pull cash flow. So right now what we're seeing, bridge debt is debt. No one's utilizing it. No one's lending on it. Um, I'm sure they're out there, but really not too much. Agency is the go-to right now. And when I say agency, I'm talking agency assumptions. The interest rate that you have on your debt right now is super powerful. We've got some multifamily right now with fixed rate debt for seven years at 3.49%. You could not get that or relatively close to that today. You're probably at five and a half on agency. Mm -hmm. So if I have a property for $5 million uh, balance on it and I bought it for $7.5 million, my LTV was somewhere probably around like, you know, 70%, something mm-hmm. like that. But if I wanted 10 million for that property today, but I said in order for you to purchase it, to get to that price point, you're going to have to assume my debt because it only works with the numbers at three and a half interest rate instead of maybe 6% interest rate. So someone is going to have to come in, assume my debt. They're going to have to pay a 1% uh, assumption fee, mm-hmm. but they're also going to have to bring 50% loan to value now to the transaction to make up the difference of that 5 million uh, principal balance mm-hmm. to the 10 million purchase price. So assumptions are great because there's value in them now, mm-hmm. but if you're looking at assumptions and they're below 40%, you might as well just go get a new loan because now you're, you're putting too much capital into the project. Mm-hmm. So assumptions are working right now and are very valuable for certain deals, certain assets, each one's different, mm-hmm. but really agency still to go to right now. 
um, but it's going to be lower leverage agency to hit that debt service coverage ratio. We were talking about that one, mm-hmm. two or one, three DSCR, mm-hmm. you're going to have to put some money down. So maybe you're putting 40% down instead of 30% down. Um, and then the other one that I hear a lot of people are going to right now, they're going recourse bank. Um, typically you want non-recourse because there's less risk associated with that. But some people willing to do deals right now, they're going to take on recourse by going to bank debt because banks are giving a little bit better better terms than agency, for example. So that's what we're seeing right now in the lending market. Very nice. Thank you for that rundown. Now, I have to ask you, Dante, who was your mentor? I mean, you, I have to say, I've been doing commercial real estate for, I think, 25 years. And, you know, it took a long time to learn this stuff. You are 25 yourself. How did you (laughs) learn? How did you get started? Before we go on any further, I need to know this. How did you get started and who was your mentor? Yeah, so I I never really had a mentor, so to speak. So all these books you see behind me here, these bookshelves, I I read like a majority of those books in a year. And I just was like a sponge soaking up every ounce of information I could. Um, Back in 2017 or 18, I started up a podcast and I had guests like AJ Osborne on, uh, you know, some bigger pockets uh, hosts and things that they're really popular today. You couldn't get in contact with them, but I got in front of them before they got popular, had them come on the show. And I was just, you know, it was a way for me to speak with these people one on one, record the conversation, ask what questions I want to ask and absorb all this in knowledge. So I, I never really had a mentor. I was self-taught. I never went to college. Um, I just, when I want to find out something, I research it really well. I figure out the answer and I get really creative. And so networking is a huge piece. Like I said, that podcast is kind of like networking to me to a degree. Um, but it's also going online, finding out the research, doing the information, and then getting out there, getting in front of people. Um, I host a, a meetup or a networking event. It used to be monthly. Now it's quarterly. And I've had hundreds of investors come through that event. And it's been a way for me to just get comfortable with people, uh, get lean in the business, build relationships, and learn from other people you know that are local to me or in my network. And that's that's been huge. Um, so no real mentor for the most part. That's awesome. I love that you're an autodidact and you it's all about <laughs> learning. You. Absolutely. And you know, and that's key. It's always learning from our mistakes and improving and growing every day. And you did it in a year. This is awesome. Reading books. I love reading books. I, I don't know if you've heard of him, but I'll tell you the guy I learned real estate from one of the first was Carlton Sheets. Have you ever heard of him? I've not. No. Okay. He's back in the nineties or maybe even who knows, but um, it was back. Yeah. I remember getting his course and starting to learn from him. And then I just, same way as you just read and, you know, I went to college and got my degrees and everything, my MBA and everything, but I learned from experience and that's key. And you've been doing this now and you're learning from all your experience. That's the best way to learn real estate is by doing it. And um, really awesome. So, I, I always tell people, you can read these books as much as you want, think you you know so much, but the best way to learn is to take action and do. You'll, you'll never learn better than getting that you know, 1 a.m. toilet call from a tenant. You know, you can't learn that in a book. <laughs> now, that's why we have a third-party management company. Exactly. And they take those yep. calls. So don't call me yep. on that. Um, so tell us, um, okay, you said you focus on two, 2 to 20. And so, okay, that's your focus right now. Now, Where are you seeing opportunities? I would assume that the two to 20 have the opportunities because that's where you're at. But tell us where you're seeing opportunities 
uh, for people to invest? Is it mainly multifamily in that range? Or and how about other uses? Are you seeing some, you know, some deals coming out? Or is it pretty slow as well? It's definitely pretty slow. My investors that are investing in the smaller multifamily, they're killing it right now. It's all about finding long-term mom and pop uh, owners. You're not going to be buying owner deals from one and two-year owners right now because their basis is too high unless they're a distressed seller. Mm -hmm. So something that I, I do is I, I cold call a lot, hundreds, if not you thousands hustle. of calls. A you week. hustle. Yeah. I love this. It, yeah, you have to. And so, you know, these last two weeks I've cold called I, I brought in about 45 qualified leads and converted six of them to contracts. And I'm still working on converting the rest of them to contracts. But again, that's stuff that the competition's not doing. And when you do the amount of volume and transactions that I, you know, I do, I, I wear it right up on my sleeve here. And I tell everyone I know about that and just let them know how much business I'm doing because it qualifies me over someone that's not. So I'm sourcing those deals and I'm bringing them out to my you know smaller investors and they're doing very well with those opportunities right now. They're able to buy a deal, get a good basis, do some work, flip it around, or cash flow it really strong. Um, I, I also see retail doing really well, um, depending on you know geographically, mm -hmm. you know, what area it's in. But where I'm located right now, new retail buildings are going up, they're getting filled. New retail buildings are going up, they're getting filled. Wow. You don't see too many for lease signs up right now. The office realm, most definitely, but the retail space stuff's just filling up, filling up, filling up. So I, I feel like that's been super competitive right now. And I, I don't know, but I have been hearing that industrial, there's a, a massive demand for these flex spaces, these industrial spaces with high, high over uh, overhead garage doors and high ceilings. I've heard that those are doing extremely well as well. Very nice. Interesting things. Uh, I find um, industrial fascinating. Um, I remember brokering deals back in Seattle, actually, many years ago. But warehousing, I've noticed a trend. A lot of warehousing space has increased in our area here in New York. Um, there's a lot of warehousing spaces and it's growing and it's very easy to build overall compared to other types of uses. You know, it tends to be very basic with you put the AC and everything on top, the heating and everything. And it's a basic building. I'm not an engineer, but um, so I'm seeing a lot of warehousing spacing open up. And uh, I'm wondering yep. if that could possibly be opportunities as well for those type of um, commercial spaces. I've just been wondering, do you have you heard anything about warehousing or industrial growing? Uh, a, a little bit for sure. I, again, it's not really an asset I focus on too much. So I, I not a good source of info for that. I'm really not, but I, I do hear people being very successful in that space right now. Absolutely. And, you know, when it comes to businesses as well, like self-storage units, I think I saw you mention something about storage units. I like that asset class as well. Yep. Have you been working with any storage units lately? Have you been looking at any? Now, tell us about that. Yeah. So we've tracked some down. We've put some offers in. We've negotiated some. But to me, it is a, a very heavily saturated space at the moment. Yes. It's very inexpensive to get into. It's very easy to get approved. It's a slab of concrete with, you know, three walls, a garage door and a roof. It's very easy. Mm -hmm. There's no insulation. There's no electrical. There's no HVAC. There's no plumbing. So because of that barrier to entry, excuse me, that barrier to entry that's so low, the market's just getting flooded with it. And so we we had an asset that was right down the street from where we just built a house. It was a self-storage facility. The place was new, but the guy had no idea what he's doing. And it was only 40% occupied. And 50 of those 40% of occupants weren't even paying 
he had the storefront rented out to a tenant that was managing the property for him that wasn't their business. He's running his boat payment through the PL, you know, and he was looking for like 1.3 million. We offered him, I, I believe it was about 1.1 million. And then I was doing some research and I noticed that directly across the street, a facility was being built in the pipeline that was three times, or excuse me, five times the size of that facility. And it was brand new, all drive-in conditioned space. And so we retracted our offer because we knew we couldn't compete with these guys going in against, you know, across the street from us. They were taking up five times more market share in that little corridor than we would have had. So we pulled back our offer price. Someone else ended up buying it. And to this day, you know, they've got four rent signs, free storage, free two months, you know, lots of concessions to try to get people in. And they're obviously struggling. So I was happy with that. We've looked at car washes too. Um, we had an accepted offer on a car wash uh, facility. It ended up flooding and the, there was a massive flood that came through and it flooded the, um, the, uh, the control room or whatever you want to call it, the maintenance room. And it just ruined all the machinery. And so we ended up not getting into that, which I'm happy because uh, I did a, a whole thread, uh, a whole thread on that on Twitter on buying a car wash and how management intensive it is and how much, how many moving parts there is. It seems easy, but it's not. Um, so, you know, we've looked at other asset classes, but nothing we've been super comfortable to hop into bed with. Great points there. I think it's a very important issue to discuss is that when everyone seems to pitch it as so easy, it's so yep. automated, you know, most likely isn't. And car washes is one of that asset classes that I'd like to refer to as that. The laundromats are another one. That's another very machine intensive and they break down and you have a lot of expense. I know people- And, that and a lot of environmental issues too. Yes, that too. Exactly. And so those are kind of businesses that come with real estate, or you can have a lease with that. You have to really look at the fine print and look at the numbers very closely and look at yep. the type of maintenance expenses and equipment that you may need to replace sooner than you might think. And, you know, the storage units, you know, it's, um, they come at a premium and I've been looking for quite a few of them. And it seems that there's so many of them and it always boils down to supply and demand. And like yep. you said, you have a cross street, you saw more coming into the market, better quality units coming to the market, more supply. There's going to be, you know, your units are going to have issues with demand. So that's exactly. very important. How are you going to keep them rented? So always look at supply and demand. So see, it worked out for the best. So, it, it did. And, and with, with car washes, laundromats, those assets are those uh, short and quick dopamine hits because you're getting cash immediately. You're, you're clearing out the coin machine and you're seeing the transactions come through yes. versus regular real estate is once a month typically. And it's like, all right, great. It's there. Now it's getting dwindled down by expenses and it hits again next month, dwindled down by expenses. But that's more the long term game exactly. where, again, car wash, laundry facilities, uh, quick, quick hits, quick hits. $100 a day, $5,000 a day, $300 a day, you know, it's all around. And these guys, you know, flaunt it online. I own a car wash, I own a laundromat, and they don't really show all the uh, actual problems with them. You are wise beyond your years. I have to say, I love that because <laughs> it's you. always about delayed gratification and long-term yep. benefits. You know, we need to work on our long-termism rather than our short-termism. Everyone's so incentivized for that short-term benefits, money, quick money. But we exactly. look for the long-term growth. 
I always say what comes fast can be taken away so quickly as well. Yes. So let's keep working on building. So let's talk about creative terms and financing. I yep. always love that with real estate, you know, cash out refinancing is one of them, how you can use that money to multiply your holdings. Um, you have the 1031 exchanges, taxes are important issues you want to try to minimize. Um, you know, owner financing is great. Tell us about all those kind of things and what you've been working with lately. Yeah. So earlier I mentioned that I'm buying a 12 unit personally, just yes. for myself with no investors for the tax purpose. So because I sell real estate, um, I'm what's called a QREP or qualified real estate professional. Mm -hmm. So that means I get to use depreciation from buildings I own mm -hmm. and I get to use it against my income, which is huge. So for example, all the buildings I syndicate, my portion of depreciation, I get to use it against my income. We use cost segregations and 100% bonus depreciation this year, 80%, next year, 60 and so forth um, to accelerate that depreciation. Instead of taking over 27 and a half years, we take it all up front in year one. Right now, year one and year two because of the depreciation that's getting phased out. Um, so to put that into perspective, let, let's look at that in an equation. Let's say I make $400,000 in and not, not a financial advisor, not a CPA, mm -hmm. none of that. Go talk to your professionals, everyone. But let, let's say I do $400,000 in gross commission income that I'm making for my personal uh, wages of brokerage. Yeah. But let's say I have let's uh, $200,000 of depreciation off of real estate I own mm -hmm. that year. I'm going to take that $400,000 income that I was supposed to t pay 37.5% uh, taxes on. I'm going to take that $200,000 depreciation that's going to subtract my taxable basis from 400 to 200. Mm -hmm. So that means I'm only paying taxes on an income of 200,000. This is huge because now I'm paying half the taxes I'm supposed to pay. I get to hold on to more money. And I'm going to use that money to reinvest it into real estate. The caveat here that no one wants to talk about, which isn't the super sexy part, is uh, depreciation recapture. So when I go to sell those assets, I have to pay back all the depreciation I took and all the taxes I was supposed to pay. The way to beat that is with the 1031 exchange. So instead of selling these assets and having to pay depreciation recapture tax, I'm just going to sell the asset, use the funds, put it into a new asset. And there's ways you can do a reverse 1031 exchange, all these great things. But someone's going to say, okay, you just put all the money into the next deal. You never got to see any of the money from that first deal you sold. Well, I do because I'm cash flowing it. The next deal I'm cash flowing. And that next deal that I put all the money into... I'm just going to go ahead and do a tax-free cash out refinance to access all that equity as if I bought it with only 25% down, even though I may have put 50% into it. And then after all that, maybe I just keep doing it. I die and it's a step, step up basis or step down basis or whatever. I'm sure the laws will change by the time I die and it goes to my kids. But there's so many tax benefits and ways that you can lessen your tax burden. And it's all about the velocity of money. Do I want 100,000 or 200,000 more today or do I want it in five years from now? Well, I want it today because I can invest it to grow quicker. And that's the whole point. That's why the tax benefits are there. That's why the tax code is there. So it's all about getting creative and using all these different strategies. And again, I learn all this from these books I read, the research I do, the people I talk to. And you know, we can get into seller financing. We can get into you know master lease options, all these other things. But that's the beauty of real estate. There's no one way to invest. There is millions of ways to invest, millions of ways to get creative, 
You just need to find out what works best for you in your situation. Absolutely. I love the creativity with real estate and the taxes. Depreciation is a big one. Excellent points, Tara. The 1031 exchange is key. You know, we talk about owner financing. That's another great one. And there's a lease backs. Um, you have lease options. You know, I want to talk about condo conversions. Back in the day, um, maybe this date, if this dates me, it's okay. 20 years ago, I think it was, maybe a little less. I was doing a lot of multifamily and the condo conversions were so hot. And I'm sure mm. it's no longer like that. Are you still seeing condo conversions out there? You know, I I have no, no experience with condo conversions and the area I'm located in, it's extremely hard to find a condo and extremely hard to find a townhouse. It's just not with the landscape of what we have here. So I can't really speak to it too much, but I know it's a hot market because people that want townhouses, people that, excuse me, that want condos, they fly off the shelf. Every time they're available for sale in this location, they don't last more than five days on the market is what I'm seeing. So I can totally understand why someone would want to buy, you know, maybe an apartment complex or something and get them all separately deeded mm -hmm. and, and convert them to condos to make more money and sell them off individually. That's certainly a strategy. I've heard many people do it, just not something I'm, I'm familiar with or have strategy with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, always, like you said, you work with what you know, and that's what you focus yep. on. Uh, many years ago, I used to do, um, we buy, you know, when you buy a larger parcel, and then you can chop it up. Usually you make more money when you chop it up into little pieces, which is condo yep. conversion, or when you buy land, you separate land from a home, and then you you, you sell the, the other parcel, or you build on that parcel, and then you sell the individual units um, yeah, usually there's value that you create by dividing up something and then reselling it. So, right. um, yeah, so it's interesting to know condo conversion could possibly be hot nowadays as well. Seems like it would make sense. Um, so let's talk about this commercial real estate crash. Everyone's talking about, you know, everyone's fearful. And, you know, when I when I think of um, the fear involved, I always think that, you know, humans, people will find another way and they're going to repurpose these office spaces. Uh, but what are your thoughts? Do you think that I mean, it always seems that challenges bring opportunities. What are your concerns in the commercial real estate market? And has it really slowed you down? It doesn't seem like it has. No, it, it definitely hasn't. You know, I'm always optimistic. I always am I'm very safe with my investments. I like to think I always set money aside. I always have capital available and ready. And people keep saying that they're going to see some major market crash. Keep in mind, I'm 25. I haven't gone through the G uh, great financial crisis. Okay. I haven't been through a recession, so I don't know what it's going to look like. But from the research I've done, this is very different. Back in the you know great financial crisis, there was so many issues with credit with lending, overextending, and just uh, ninja, you know, no uh, no job, no income applications or loans where people could get a loan if they had a pulse. People were putting loans in their dog's names and no one was checking and they were getting multiple homes with 0% down. So there was no skin in the game, essentially. Today, the lending criteria, to a degree, the lending criteria is so stringent and so strict now. It's more difficult to get a mortgage today than it was 13, 14, 15 years ago. Now, the argument for that can be bridge debt. People lend out some pretty stupid bridge debt terms and loans, which are going to come due and they're going to mature. And they're, that's going to be, they're a whole other uh, part of issue. But the problem is, is our economy seems so resilient right now. 
unemployment's still super low. Wages are still up. And the other thing is, is there's so much capital sitting on the sidelines, still wanting to buy deals, still wanting to buy real estate. So when people have to get rid of these deals or they have maturities coming up on their loans, you're you're going to have capital there already. There's already a, there's going to be a battle for these properties. There's still going to be bidding wars. I'm still seeing bidding wars going on for properties that are priced appropriately and are in the right locations. So I, I don't see a crash eminent here. I see a slight decline, a slight pullback, but it seems to be that the Fed's trying to force us into a recession. They're trying to increase unemployment to get inflation down. And that's the big thing. People are saying, oh, the Fed's going to get ready to cut interest rates or interest rates are going to start coming down by the end of the year. Well, there's two things you need to look at. There's CPI, you know, consumer price index, but then there's core CPI, which is with real estate and food. CPI inflation doesn't include two major essentials, shelter and food. So we, you know, we've seen CPI come down from, I think it was like 9.1 to 3.8%. That's great. That's come down a bunch. But if you look at core CPI or core, you know, uh, inflation, it's barely moved by like a percent, maybe a percent and a half. It's been very stagnant. So until, until that number starts pulling back and getting under control, we're not going to see a, a cut in interest rates. We're going to see a rise because we need to get that number under control. Again, I'm young. I, you know, I don't have the education here. I haven't been through these recessions, but you know, men lie, women lie, numbers don't lie. And it's the numbers that we're looking at here. And they, they just, they don't support a crash intimately. Agree. I don't think there's probably going to be a crash. You know, that was a credit uh, risk that we had back in 2008. I remember clearly I was actually doing commercial real estate. I had my own brokerage. I was an owner broker of commercial real estate firm in downtown Seattle at the time. And I remember that occurring. And we have different risks nowadays. It's more about liquidity. It's not really credit. And the lending standards are much, much tighter. Absolutely. Um, since that event. So, you know, I want to go into the core CPI just briefly. You mentioned that absolutely it's close to 5%, you know, high fours. It's been sticky. It's entrenched. There's definitely entrenchment going on. It's embedded. And that's very concerning. Many say, many economists say we need a recession to break the back of that inflation. Then there are other monetarists that say the money supply is shrinking at the fastest rate since the 1930s and a recession is already baked in. So it seems to me a recession is most likely um, upcoming into next year. Uh, however, it does not translate into a commercial real estate or real estate crash per se. Right. Um, but it will be difficult times ahead. And, you know, my concern, and I want to bring this up with you, is that commercial real estate loans are shorter term. And now there are many that are probably going to have to be refied. And then we have a lot of vacancies with the office and the vacancies are increasing. I mean, and higher, you know, expenses, operating expenses and margins are compressed with a lot of these cash flowing properties. Do you, what, what do you see as a potential outcome? Um, when people need to refi higher rates, a cash flow property that was cash flowing is no longer cash flowing because of the higher rates. I mean, we're talking, you know, rates have gone, you know, practically zero to over 5%. So what are your thoughts on what could happen are those possible opportunities for people who have that cash? You know, I'm. you're going to see a lot of uh, unexpected 
experienced operators leave the market and walk away because they're not going to be able to find opportunities. They're not going to be able to hold on to opportunities. Mm -hmm. It's going to be those unseasoned investors that are going to get hurt, that are optimistic, don't know what they're doing, and are just kind of banking on you know what everyone else is doing, thinking it's going to work out. Airbnb is a great example. Mm -hmm. Airbnb has become overly abundantly popular in the last three years during COVID and after COVID. My wife and I ran an Airbnb prior to COVID. And we were number one, number two, typically in our area. Anytime you searched us, we were 98, 99% occupied. The place was never empty. After COVID hit, there were so many listings that came on the market. We, we didn't, it had nothing, that had nothing to do with us stopping it. We just, it was more of a time thing. We wanted some of our time back and allocate funds to something different. But the amount of Airbnbs that came on the market, because people were sold a dream. You can throw a couch, a bed, and some linen in, in, you know, in a unit and get you know, $150 a night. You can make double what you would as a regular rental. But you know, the, the music's going to stop, but there's not going to be enough chairs. There's going to be too much inventory for something like that. So Airbnb is an example. The top 10% of operators in Airbnb, they're going to be fine. They're going to keep doing what they're doing because they're professional. They know how to do it. They have the data. You know, it's, it's, it's the people that don't have experience, the people that don't set the reserves, the people that overextended those are the ones that are going to get hurt through this and but that's that's been the answer always the people that are safe taking lower ltvs putting reserves in place using fixed rate debt all the elementary stuff those and underwrite properly and don't underwrite to eight percent annual rent growth for the next six years you know those are the guys that are going to get hurt the ones that are more conservative and maybe aren't even underwriting a rent growth the next year or two those are the guys that are going to be able to hit projections, hit numbers, service the loans and survive. Absolutely. Risk management is always number one. And you always have to account for what can happen because a lot can happen at this point. Yep. And yes, it's a seasoned people who, you know, they invest properly and with risk management in their mind always. And so um, Airbnb, excellent example. We're reading all the research nowadays of many vacancies in Airbnbs. And there was a lot of arbitrage that went on with that. And people didn't even yep. own the properties. And they were doing like a sublease or, you know, short-term rental based on their lease. So exactly. whenever you see euphoria like that in a market, you know, it's most likely not going to end too well. So um, yeah, very concerning over there. And that's another concern for the residential market. We could see a flooding of a huge supply of these, you know, second, third, fourth homes that people own coming to the market. So a lot of uh, potential headwinds over there as well. Do you right. still believe that, in, that um, real estate is a good hedge against inflation? Yeah, I, I think real estate's great. I always tell people it's the long game. If you buy real estate and you plan on selling it in a year or two and you're not significantly improving it, prepare to lose money. Real estate's not designed to be bought and sold the next year, the next two years. If you're buying real estate and you plan to hold it for the next 10, 12, 15 years, mm -hmm. you're going to make money. Values go up historically. Short term, you know, real estate's going to go like this. And, you know, for those that aren't watching and are just listening, mm -hmm. I'm going, you know, up with a few downs, but up, 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 and it's continuing to go up. That's what real estate has done since the beginning of history and the beginning of time. Buy what they're not making any more of, and that's land. It will continue to go up in value. It will follow inflation. It will go down at times. Like right now, we're seeing it down 10 to 20%. But I can guarantee you, 
if you look at values today and you look at them from 10 years to now, they will be up in every aspect, every sector. And that comes with a caveat that you have to manage the property well, keep upkeep it, make sure it's uh, functioning and operating properly. If you just set it and forget it, then you know, forget it's not going to be up, it's going to be down. Great point. Long term, I always tell people the same thing. You know, if you hold on to real estate, the long term, it's always the trajectory is up, just like the stock market. You look at the indexes, the trajectory is up. So even if you let's say you bought your home before the big, you know, 2008, you know, real estate, you know, bust that we had, we had a terrible, you know, period there. It was, uh, you really thought it was the end of the world. You really, it was really the financial crisis was horrible. And, you know, you buy a home before then. It took a while to recover for sure. But if you bought then, it's higher now. And, you know, it it's, it's, yeah. So it eventually works itself out, you know, because inflation is real. Our, you know, our inflation property, you know, goes up. Everything goes up. And, you know, I always like to talk about location. Scarcity is key in real estate. I just had to throw it out there. But beachfront property is always nice. And yep. that always holds its value. Um, yeah, they so, can't make any more of that. They're not making exactly. more waterfront the beachfront scarcity, property. Yes, scarcity is key. It's always about supply and demand. So I want to talk about cap rates again. I want to go back into that cash on cash return and ROI. How do you use those figures? Is To me, cash on cash return is probably one of the most important. I always look at the cash yield. How yep. do you use those numbers and how do you look at properties and analyze? Yeah, so cash on cash is probably one of my favorites because it's real time. What are you getting on your capital? Yes, exactly. IRR, that can get very easily manipulated. Equity mm -hmm. multiple, manipulated. Average annual return, manipulated. But in cash on cash can be manipulated, most definitely. But it's a it's a much shorter term calculation because it's annually. IRR is taking in five to six years worth yeah. of predictions. Yeah, you, you can screw up very easily on that. One year you screw up on this. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's twenty percent of the you know the the calculation. You can change your cap rate, decrease it by twenty basis points, and get over a fifteen percent IRR. But cash on cash return is how much money do I have invested? What's my total cash in? What am I yielding on that every year? And what's that percentage? We all like to have a good cash on cash return. Our projects in North Carolina, they are more value add based where we're increasing the value of the asset naturally. Not excuse me, not naturally, forcefully by we're in, you know in, infusing updates and upgrades into the property which is bringing up the value and bringing mm -hmm. up the income. But those projects you know looking back, we do anywhere from a 4 to 12% cash on cash return annually depending on the project. Some of them have different debt on them that affects the cash on cash return. Some of them, you know, which makes it a little bit lower. Some of them are a little bit higher depending on the basis. So on our passive investments that we offer to investors through our syndications, we typically advertise a 7 or 8% average cash on cash. That means it could be 4% the first year and then maybe 11% the last year and it's going to average out somewhere around, you know, 6 to 8%. Um, and we've been able to achieve that every year, every quarter, every month we've operated. And even where we are in the economy right now, we continue to beat those expectations because it's under promise over deliver. That's our motto when it comes to underwriting and inject and, and, and talking to investors. And we've done that personally on projects that I invest in where I'm not splitting with investors and I'm doing it myself. I'm typically looking for 10% plus cash on cash return. And I'm able to achieve those numbers with some of the projects that I buy. There's investors that want a 5% cash on cash return or a yield. 
And that's where I'm going to direct them towards maybe a more triple net lease operation where the yield is very low, <clears throat> excuse me, with a risk is also very low. So it just depends. But the cash on cash I'm looking for personally is 10% or greater. What we're offering our investors is about 7 or 8%. And that's a passive return where they they send in a check and they get mailbox money. They get, they get better than mailbox money. Mailbox money, you have to go down the driveway to get it. We do ACH money. It goes directly in your checking account. You know, it's much easier that way. And they're still getting a good return that way. Very nice. I like the ACH. That's a, always a nice way to get paid. Um, the cash on cash return, I like 10% or higher as well. That's usually what I look for is a 10% uh, minimum, but uh, very important uh, to note that. And I'll just make a mention for the audience is that when you have T-bills, you know, bringing you, you know, over 5%, it's, it's about the cash on cash and what can you do with that cash and real estate. And I want to make this point is not fully passive, even though the IRS has a classification that's passive income, it's not fully passive. And that's the big myth that I want to debunk. Now, Dante, you don't just sit around and have, you don't have to even think about your real estate. It is active, right? It's never truly passive. Tell us about that. Right. Let's debunk that myth. Yeah. So, you know, even the assets I have in North Carolina, yes, I'm not managing them, but I still have weekly calls where we yes. meet with the property manager, we review the financials, how many vacancies do we have, any delinquencies, any evictions, mm -hmm. what units do we have coming up? Are we sending out renewals? What's going on with these expenses? We're still managing the managers. Mm -hmm. So some of our assets where, yeah, we, we brought it down from 98 to 40% occupancy because we were renovating and increasing the asset. That was the heavy lift period. That was the value add period. That's where we were doing weekly calls with back and forth emails all week. Now we've got those assets to the point where it's boring because we have maybe a monthly call with the property manager and it's more of a, how are you doing? Okay, yeah, we get the weekly updates that you send, not too much to talk about, but we still have to keep our finger on the pulse and understand what's going Absolutely. on with the asset. So Absolutely. there's a lot of work up front. It's more front loaded. I'm not saying it's 100% passive, but it does get easier once you do the work up front. But there's still things that occasionally pop up that we have to deal with. You know, my personal assets, you know, I'm not actively managing them, but I'm managing the manager. If you can't manage your property manager, they'll do whatever. Luckily, we have very good property managers where we don't have to babysit them too much and they do a good job naturally. And we're very fortunate and blessed to have that. Um, but it, it's not all passive. There's still a lot to it, especially come tax time. And you've got 85 passive investors you work with. You got a lot of preparation and accounting and work you have to do. So there's always something with it. Absolutely. Well said. There's always work and there's always something that comes up, no matter how well you plan for the future. And even if you have a third party management company, there's always something. And it's a lot of decision making, I said. I'm always making executive decisions and I'm deciding whether this or that. And there's always something that comes up when you own a property. You know, once you're in a cruise mode and year two or year three, something comes up, you need a new roof. And then you got to yep. go and, and analyze the different roofs. Then you got to figure this out. It's it's always something, but it's fun. If you enjoy real estate, I say, go for it. I think it's a lot yep. of fun. I enjoy it. So I want to ask you um, to give advice to some people who are interested in starting out. What would be a good way for them to start out to get their feet wet? Yeah, right now, and so I just had a call with somebody yesterday, Young, younger guy, wanted to get started, wanted to, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go. Stop. Don't go. Now is a very difficult time to go. It's a very uncertain market. If you aren't experienced right now, like I said earlier in the call, 
those guys that are not seasoned investors, those are the ones that are going to get hurt. Don't buy any property right now. Look around, take on what's going on, take in what's going on in the market, act like a sponge, absorb everything that's going on. Use this time to sharpen your axe, get really familiar with what's going on. Don't just jump into a deal to jump into a deal. I've done dozens of real estate deals now. So yes, I'm doing deals right now in this market because I'm more seasoned to it. Yeah, I may be young, I may be 25, but I've bought tens of millions of dollars of real estate and operated it already. So I understand what's going on. I understand the fundamentals. Maybe not as well as those senior guys that have been doing it for 25, 30 years, but you need to understand the market and where you're at in the cycle. And a lot of younger people or someone that's looking to get started, they get excited and they just want to jump in and they jump in at a bad time. So just be very cautious right now. I'm telling people to just learn, learn, learn. Don't dive in. Wise words. Um, you know, it's about separating your emotions. It's good to have emotions and feelings. You get excited. It's all normal. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, we're humans, but it's separating that from the action. It's not rushing in, using that impulsiveness to rush into deals and, and move forward right away. Take your time, observe, separate intuition from impulse. Uh, well said. You are so wise behind your, beyond your years. I have to say, this is I love this. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. So you're welcome. I like to analyze some deals. I know that's on your website. You have a great website and you talk about analyzing deals. So why don't we start and let's analyze some deals. Okay. How do you want to do that? However way you like. Show us how you do it. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll kind of like verbally break it out. Just That'd be great. Just verbally, yeah. Just break, it, break yeah. it down for us. How you think. Your thinking process. So, you know, skipping over the location aspect. So before I even look at a deal, before I even look at the numbers, mm -hmm. I don't care about the numbers. Send me the address. I'm going to plug the address mm -hmm. in. I'm going to walk it. I'm going to look at the street view. I'm going to see what retails around there. Things I don't want to see. Pawn shops used car dealerships, mm. uh, the the head shops or whatever that, you know, sell marijuana, yes. things like that. Vacant spaces, old spaces. I don't want to see any of that. I look at it. If I see a retail center, that's like a small strip center that, like I said, is a, a pawn shop, a strip club, a used car dealership and something else, pass. We're on to the next deal. If you send me a deal that's got a really nice plaza with a, a, a TJ Maxx, a Marshalls, a Target, something like that, great. We're, we're on the right path. Location, location, location. First thing I look at. Um, let me just pull something up here so I can kind of tell you line by line just about what I look at here. Mm -hmm. um, next, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, I'm going to type in the address or the property name followed by flood, fire, gunshot, or shooting. If you see any of those things pop up, typically the shooting one, we're done. If, if it's just one, let's analyze what it is. But if it's more than one, done. If it's a flood, if it's a fire, let's find out what it was, how it was remedied, if that makes sense. Um, I'm going to look at median income. I'm going to look at population growth. I'm going to look at crime in that neighborhood. Haven't even looked at numbers yet. This is how mm -hmm. I analyze the deal. Haven't even looked at numbers. Keep that in mind. I'm going to go to Google it, look at the reviews. Um, I'm going to look at the justice map to see uh, who's in that neighborhood, what income they're pulling in that neighborhood. What's the population density in that neighborhood? All super important. I'm going to look on a flood map, a FEMA flood map. Is this property in a flood zone? That's probably a deal killer as well. Or maybe the price has to be compensated for that. Once I do all that, then I say, send me the numbers. Let's look at the, the numbers. I'm going to look at the T12, see which way it's trending. Is it up, down, is it flat? I'm going to look at the last three months of income. 
Is it up significantly? If so, why? I'm going to look at the annual expenses. I'm going to highlight expenses that are controllable and non-controllable. Taxes, insurance, things that I can't control. Great. Those are the expenses. Can I get a, a, a better landscaping contract? Can I get a better management agreement? Can I get a better contract in place for that property to lower expenses? And then I'm simply going to take, you know, price per door is, is a good measurement. Is it 100000 a door or is it 65000 a door? Depending on the market, 100000 may be too much, not worth my time spending an hour underwriting the deal. Is it 75 a door? And usually I'd buy it 65 a door. Okay, we're in the ballpark. Let's take a look at it. Maybe offer them 70 a door. So I'm looking at all these things before I'm even taking the T12 and plugging in numbers. Um, once I get the numbers in there, I'm starting to stress test. I'm starting to look at comps for apartments as far as rental rates. Where can I get the numbers to go? Um, does it need new roofs? Does it need new paving? What are my repairs and maintenance budget going to be? What am I setting aside for CapEx for the asset? So these are all things I'm doing. And then once I have that in, I'm going to look at my cash on cash, my RR, IRR, my equity multiple. If it's not what I need it to be, typically a 15% IRR, 7% cash on cash, 1.9 equity multiple, then I'm going to come back off the purchase price until I get to those returns I need. And there's my offer. Love it. That was a great breakdown. That was really awesome. Thank you so much. For Thank that. you. So location is number one. And that's key. And know your markets. You know, someone offers you something out in Nevada and says, ah, oh, look at this cash on cash of 20%, let's say, you know, yeah. you're going to say, well, that's not my market, right? Yeah, exactly. Love yep. that. See, that's discipline. And that's an admirable trait that you have. And that's key for success. I love that. Very wise at such a young age. This is great, Dante. Now, I want to know about your future plans. Apparently, you're going places, and uh, we'd like to know a little more about your plan. Where I want to know what you're planning for your future, goals that you have, and I want to know what you have your eye on, maybe from a distance, that you're hoping or you're watching for a downturn so you can hop in and get into that market. Yeah, so I get asked this question a lot, you know, where do you want to be in the future? What, what's your plan? So I always tell people, I look at every dollar I have as an employee. It's never going to call in late for work. It's always going to show up on time. It's going to work really hard. And I want it to bring me back another employee or have another a dollar bring me back another dollar so I can work for me as well. So that, that's my thing. When I get cash, I want to get it away from me. I want to get deployed. I want to get it working. So right now, what I'm focusing on is multifamily deals. Building up, it's not a huge portfolio I'm looking to build. It doesn't have to be this crazy assets under management or AUM that everyone kind of flirts about with. Mm -hmm. It's uh, quality assets at a good basis where they're going to cash flow strong. Once, and there's no timeline, there's no dollar amount I want to get to. But once I'm at a comfortable point that I want to start flipping some assets and getting rid of them, I'll exercise a 1031 exchange. And that's where I want to start getting into some mixed use, maybe some ground up development, maybe some retail like triple net, mm -hmm, get it in some more passive investments and then cash out refinance it. So I have the capital to do more projects. I really enjoy what I do. I love what I do. I always tell my wife and anyone that asks, I don't work every day. I'm, I, I'm playing. It's like real life monopoly. I get to do what I love every single day. And I want to continue to do that. I love deal hunting. I love putting deals together. There's no crazy goal I have. Um, no real future outlook, just continuing to do what I'm doing every day, having fun, meeting people like yourself, networking, 
um, and just making every day different. No two days are alike in this business, as you know. Absolutely. I love it too. It's so much fun going out and hunting, like you said, looking at deals, analyzing, you know, walking properties and then analyzing the numbers. All so much fun. Real estate has never been work to me either. And I uh, love you always always say, you know, focus on your passions and do what you love. And it's great if the money comes too. It's, it's, it's really awesome. So when you work on deals, do you work on, do you like to work with your, by yourself or do you also partner with other people for larger deals? Uh, larger deals. So we syndicate. So I have one partner for 50, 50 and we run the whole deal and we'll bring in investors, but it's going to depend on the size deal. If it's a million, $2 million deal, you know, I'll probably do it myself. But if we're looking at a five, six, seven plus million dollar deal, that's when we'll start to bring on passive investors in our network. Um, but they're just that. They're passive. They have no decision making uh, authority. They're not making any decisions. They're not doing anything with the operation. That's all us. We're just giving they're just giving us the money to utilize mm -hmm. for the investments. Yeah, Limited partners. Very nice. Our, yep. um, I like that. That's really awesome. Well, tell us how we can follow you and stay in touch with you. This has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for spending this hour plus with us, Dante. I know you have this amazing Twitter handle, but tell us about that and tell us about your websites and how people can follow you. Yeah, most definitely. Thank you. So uh, first off, you can visit our syndication website, which is victorycap. So that's victorycapgroup.com victorycapgroup.com. You can reach out to me directly at Dante at victorycapgroup.com. Um, and then of course you have the Twitter page at multifamily mad, uh, which is at multifamily madness. And uh, those are the three spots I'm most active checking my email all the time. Website has some good information. And then right on the Twitter is where I love to mess around. It's a, it's a very light place that I can just have some fun. Actually, very informative tweets as well. You mentioned a Thank lot you. of these deals and you talk about, you know, you you basically share all your commercial real estate escapades on there. So it's really a lot of fun following you. Thank you so much, Dante, for everything. And thank you to all the listeners. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.